Good morning, good morning. My name's Nathan. I got to meet uh, some new families that walked through the door this morning. It's, it's an honor to meet you and welcome to Vertical. We're so glad that you're here. Um, I have been struggling. I've told a couple people this. Saturday nights are so brutal for me coming from the West Coast because there was a football game on last night till like two in the morning. <laughs> and I forced myself to go to bed at halftime, which is like the hardest thing I've ever had to do. I'm being so trivial, I'm joking, but I woke up this morning to realize that I missed an even more incredible game. It was like a double overtime win, Colorado and Deion Sanders, it's wild. But all joking aside, um, my, my twin brother, he's been in Mississippi for 10 years and he's always told me, he's like, hey, just wait for the fall. Just wait for the fall. There's nothing like fall in Mississippi. And I've already experienced it. <clears throat> Minus being sick, I mean, it's been incredible here. Seeing the leaves change, the weather. I can go outside at 10 a.m. and it's not miserable. Because I, I just moved from Arizona and I'm telling you right now, like, you can't even go outside. It's just awful. You run to your car to the AC and you run to the office to the AC. And here it's been absolutely amazing. The fall here is already, I could tell, it's just absolutely incredible. So I feel fortunate to be here. Thank you guys for welcoming my family. Um, we're blessed for sure. And as I've just been reflecting um, on this message, we're going to be in just a little bit in Mark chapter 14. We've been going through a series in the Gospel of Mark. And if you are just showing up today, I don't want you to feel like you've missed out. You, you have missed out, but it's okay. We're going to pick up in Mark chapter 14 today. And I promise you, the Lord will still speak as if you've been here all along. I promise you. And before we get there, I was reflecting on my earliest memories with the scriptures and with a Bible. And I don't know if you can relate, but I remember being a kid and you go to church and you hear these Bible stories. And I remember when I got my Bible and I would try to read it on my own. And I tried my best to make sense of what I was reading, but I couldn't help it. It just did not make sense to me. I don't know if it was just how ancient the stories were, the different genres that I didn't understand at five and seven years old, but I struggled to make sense of the scriptures. And I remember not being super interested in the Bible. The only thing that I really was interested in is my first children's study Bible that I got at seven years old. And it had the gold gilded pages. They still make Bibles with those. And I remember thinking, wow, this book must be holy. Like, look, there's gold on the outside of these pages. And I, I, I was most excited when I would go to church when I got to go to big church. Anybody grow up? And you, you, was that a thing here? You got to skip Sunday school and you got to go to big church? Amen. Amen. And I don't know if it was because I'm an old soul and I always have been, but I feel like I got so much more out of sitting in the main service. And I can even remember the first pastor, the first church that I went to in the first big church service that I sat in. It was Harvest Church in Riverside, California, and Pastor Greg Laurie was the first pastor that I ever heard preach. I don't know if anybody knows who that is, but he's still alive and well today and he's still preaching today. Um, and I remember being really impacted. I remember giving my life to Christ at a young age when he would do altar calls. And I couldn't believe as I've gotten older and I've studied the scriptures even more to learn that in the ancient Jewish context, at five years old in this tradition, the ancient Jewish tradition in Judaism, they would start not only studying scripture at five, but they would have most, if not all, of the first five books of the Bible memorized by 13 years old. Wow. 
And they would use different tactics. They would use song and repetition in order to do that. And it's so much a part of their culture. But I remember thinking to myself, I remember being nine and we would do our, our Bible memorization competition. And when we would go to youth group, we, it was always a competition. Whoever could memorize the most verses would win some candy. And I remember it was always a hunt to find the shortest verses that you could memorize as a kid. And I remember one, I can recall one from when I was nine that I memorized. And it's not Jesus wept, okay? Have a little bit more respect for yourself if you guys are gonna memorize some short verses. It was Romans chapter three, verse 23. And I remember memorizing this at nine years old. And it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I remember reading that, and you know what I did? I used that verse as further evidence as why I didn't have to memorize any more scripture. <laughs> because we've all sinned, we all fall short, so it's okay, I don't need to memorize any more scripture, I'm good. I was a cunning little kid, I really was. And as I've gotten older, I've realized, as I've seen that life has gotten the best of the people around me, and trials and tribulation, they do come our way, and that forced me to wrestle with my faith in a way that I wasn't used to. And what it did was it pushed me even deeper into the scriptures because I wanted to make sense of the pain that was going on within me and around me. I wanted there to be some purpose behind it. I didn't want it to be for nothing, right? Seeing a lot of my family members suffer, my loved ones, my mom. I remember trying to make sense of the mess that life felt like it was. And I was like, there's got to be a reason for all this. And it pushed me further and deeper into the scriptures. And I started to learn about my, my real need for Jesus, not just my altar call moment on a Sunday morning experience, my real daily need for Jesus. <clears throat> All of us want more meaning in life. We do. All of us, if we give ourselves the bandwidth to even think about it, we all long to escape death. We do. Especially if death has touched your household, you become so much more you care so much more about the afterlife. You do. And you process these things. And you want to make sense of your surroundings. And you want more joy. And you want to avoid pain. And you want to experience laughter and love. And you want to be known, fully known by someone and actually have them stick around after they fully know you, right? These are things that we all long for. And we see all throughout our experience that we try to remedy these realities on our own. And I was confronted with that. I'm trying to take my pain and I'm trying to remedy it on my own. I'm trying to make sense of life on my own. I'm trying to search for meaning in life on my own. And then when I went to the scriptures and I saw the person of Jesus, I realized that he has come to remedy every single one of those realities that we face. He has. To look at the life of Jesus is to look at how God would live if he were us. And once we realize that, it changes our reality. It changes the way that we live right now. And that's why Jesus came. Yes, he came to reveal himself as God in the person of Christ. Yes, he came to redeem us. He came to rescue us. He came to save our soul. And the inevitable response to that reality is our life changes right now. As we've been going through this series, we talk about how when you're confronted with the one true king, you're forced to reorient your life around him and his ways and his rule and his reign. It changes things. And I was confronted with this reality that we can memorize all the scripture in the world, 
But if we miss Jesus, then we've missed everything. It's what happened to the religious leaders. I can work tirelessly to provide for my family in one of the most noble pursuits ever, but if I miss Jesus, it's all for nothing, for the illusion of temporary security. That's all that it is. I can search for pleasure in all the wrong places, and if I miss Jesus, it will only leave a lasting wake of generational pain for all those who come after me. But if we make way for King Jesus, if we make way for King Jesus, he has the power to make the ultimate difference in our lives. He's the meaning that we've been after. He's the provision that we've been seeking. We just need to continue to make way. And as we approach the Gospel of Mark, specifically the end in Mark chapter 14, I want to reiterate why we're here over and over and over again. We see it throughout this gospel that Mark, as he's writing, has the intention to answer two questions over and over again. Who is Jesus and what did he come to do? Who is he and what are his purpose? What's his why? And if we get to the end of the gospel and we miss that, that those two questions are being answered over and over again, then we've missed everything. This series was titled Make Way for a Very Specific Reason. And as we're confronted with a God who really does exist, a God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus and demonstrates his purpose in the world, in his word, we're left with an inevitable response. An inevitable response. A right response. And I'm going to get to that response in Mark chapter 14 in just a minute. Before we get there, I want to jump back to Mark chapter 2, just to reiterate this through line that we see in the life and in the person of Jesus and in what he came to do. So we're going to jump back in Mark chapter 2, verse 13, and we're going to read together. And we're going to see not only what Jesus came to do, but who he came for, who he came for. Mark chapter 2, verse 13, reads this way. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. This is the very beginning of his ministry. This shows what he's about at the early onset of his, law, his public ministry. A large crowd came to him and began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed Jesus. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Who does he think he is? On hearing this, verse 17, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The very beginning, we see the purpose of God. We see the reason why he came. We see what he's about. And Jesus is doing what no other Jewish rabbi would have ever have done during this time. He sought intimate relationships and friendships with people who would otherwise have been outcast and blacklisted from community and society. He began his public ministry in the home 
of a tax collector. This is outrageous. This is insanity. This just doesn't make sense. A tax collector is worse than the IRS. Truly. A tax collector was the ultimate traitor. A tax collector would have been someone who was a Jew who pledged his, his or her allegiance to Rome and then taxed their own Jewish people and then stole from them as well. Could you imagine having dinner with a person like that? No. You probably have some choice words with a person like that. <clears throat> and do you know what it meant in this community, in this time period, in this culture, to not just enter the home of someone and not just have a meal with someone, but to have dinner with someone? In this culture, they would typically have two meals in a day. <clears throat> later morning, early to later morning, and then late afternoon, early evening. And the first meal was always something light, quick. The last meal was always more intricate, festive, longer, better. But what a meal meant in a Jewish culture and context is it meant that you were either intimate family or intimate friendship. That's what it meant. Rarely would there be strangers that would come into your home and share a meal. Not to mention, most people would recline at table together. Do you know what that means? They would often sit on the ground and literally they would prop themselves up on one arm and they would recline at the dinner table. And so you know what this means. Someone else, their feet wouldn't be next to them because that's gross, right? Their head would be next to your head and you'd be reclining at table together. So oftentimes you hear this language of their head would be near their chest, Nobody would get that close to a tax collector or sinner. No one, but Jesus did. Why? Why? Because Jesus wasn't wasting his time. That's why. He wasn't going to spend his time on people that were going to waste his. That's why. And I'm going to get there. Just wait. I'm praying this makes sense. But why? Because the tax collectors and sinners knew they were sick. The tax collectors and sinners had no problem recognizing their need. Not only recognizing it, but admitting they needed help. That's why. The religious leaders would mask their need. They would look strong and like they had it all together in public. And they would not sacrifice their status for anything. They would never admit that they needed help or that they were sick. I think it's ironic that as I'm prepping this message, my family and I just got over what felt like an awful cold. Our son was diagnosed with RSV. He tested positive for that. And you know, as young parents, like, that's one thing that you don't want to hear. It's, RSVs can be very dangerous. And luckily, Miles just kept pushing through, kept playing through it, and he's better. But Dre and I caught the adult version of whatever that is, and it was not fun. And I was processing, <clears throat> when you're sick, I had this thought. It's a weird thought. 
Have you ever been sick and tried to play it off like you weren't sick? Have you ever done this? Maybe you just know you can't take the time off, so you show up to work anyways. And in our hustle culture, that's admirable. Good for you. And you're like, oh, there he goes. There's a cough right there. It's just allergies, right? (laughs) Get them. I'm just kidding. (laughs) And you're you're like, I'm coughing for two weeks. It's just allergies, I swear. Or you, your voice is gone. You're like, this happens once a year, every time around this, this time of year. It's, it's just, I just lose my voice. It's nothing now. I, I haven't had a fever, so I'm not contagious. Don't worry. And to everyone else, it's evident that you're not well, but you're trying to hide it, right? Isn't that silly? Isn't that silly? And this is what we do in our spiritual life. Like, we're just like, oh, <clears throat> I'm fine, I'm fine. It's like, no, you're not well, and we can see it. Just ask for help. A healthy person has 100 dreams. They wake up with the thought of endless possibilities. A sick person only has one dream. They wake up with one thought in mind, and that's to feel better. That's it. When we are sick, when we're really sick, we're typically desperate. My wife tells me that I'm the biggest baby when I'm sick. I'm like, hey, maybe it just hits me harder, okay? <laughs> she was super mom. It was insane. But we're willing to do whatever it takes to get better. Like, I put in a Whole Foods order. I had every flavor ginger shot you could ever imagine. I'm just doing anything and everything, right? Dropping my breathe oil in a hot shower, breathing it in. We'll do anything to get better when we're sick. And I've said this and it's worth saying again, the deadliest disease is the disease that often goes undiagnosed. The deadliest disease is the disease that often goes undiagnosed. And Jesus did not come for those who thought that they were well. Jesus didn't come for those who thought that they didn't need saving. Jesus came for those who knew that they needed help who knew that they needed saving, who knew that they weren't well. The people who Jesus chose to spend his time with were the ones who were well aware of their disease. They just weren't aware of the cure yet. C.S. Lewis, he writes extensively on pride as the root of all sin. And he says this about pride. Pride is the sin that can easily be seen in others but rarely admitted in ourselves. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And this is like us trying to play it off when we're sick. There's only two reasons that anyone would ever avoid any treatment or remedy for their sickness. Number one, you don't see it. We've talked about spiritual blindness before a couple weeks ago. Number two, you're too stubborn to receive it. Oh, I'll be fine. I've got this. We're good. I'm just going to push through. I don't need any help. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And here's the problem. The problem is that we're all suffering. We suffer from the disease of self-reliance. 
We suffer from a sickness of certainty and wanting to control every aspect of our lives. We suffer from a broken heart that seeks to mend itself through pleasure. We suffer from loneliness and seek to medicate through escaping or numbing out. We suffer from an addiction to comfort and we insulate our lives with as much comfort as we can get our hands on. And the problem isn't the problem, it's that we're not aware of the problem. That's the problem. But oh, once we're aware of the problem and not just aware of the problem, but aware of the cure, I'm telling you, it's beautiful. It's glorious. It's overwhelming. And there's only one appropriate response. Mark chapter 14. Now we're at the end. There's only a couple chapters left. Days left for Jesus. Days left before he goes to the cross. Now we're at the end. Mark chapter 14. Who is Jesus continuing to spend his time with? Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Now we're getting to the end. It's almost a Passover. And again, as we look at the life of Jesus and the way that he lived, we see his priority. He's at the end of his life. And how is he spending his final days? While he was in Bethany, again, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on Jesus' head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, furiously to one another, disgusted to one another. Why this waste? Of perfume. It could have been sold for more than a year's wages. Think about that. And the money could have been given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her forever forever. We see in the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry and all throughout and even at the very end, he's spending his time with people that were outcast and blacklisted from community and society, looked down upon. He's reclining at table in the home of Simon the leper, you wouldn't ever get close to anyone who had leprosy. Even after they'd been healed, you wouldn't recline at table with them. 
It started with a tax collector, and now it's ending with a leper. And both were despised for very different reasons. But again, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then you have this woman who goes unnamed in Mark's gospel. But the other gospels tell us, and some investigation tells us, if he's in Bethany, which was like a second home for Jesus, Galilee by the Sea of Galilee, and then Bethany by Jerusalem. Those were both like homes for Jesus. And if he's in Bethany, Lazarus, his best friend, lived in Bethany. Mary and Martha lived in Bethany. So this woman, the other gospel accounts tell us that this woman was Mary. And this woman, Mary, comes to Jesus. And she sees Jesus for who he is based off his actions in the past and the way that he's lived his life and the miracles that he's done. But she also knows exactly why he came. She knows exactly why he came. And because of that, she demonstrates the only appropriate response to the person of Jesus. She came with pure adoration and devotion and did only what her heart could have led her to do in that moment. And she brought her alabaster jar. And this just wasn't just any alabaster jar. This was a jar filled with literally a year's wages. And because she's a woman, culturally speaking, She didn't probably work, so this was probably her inheritance. And not only that, it was probably a family heirloom. This was something that was probably passed on for generations. And she brings this alabaster jar, her most prized earthly possession, and she breaks it and pours it over the head of Jesus. A generational family heirloom, her inheritance, her security, all of it. She pours it out, doing two things, both anointing Jesus as the true king, but also anointing him, preparing his body for burial. Typically, you only anointed someone for those two reasons. And look at the response of those around her. Wasteful shameful. I can't believe what she just did. It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and given to the poor. Yeah, right. You want to know who started this bickering in this conversation? It was Judas. You think Judas would have sold that and used it to help the poor? Not a chance. Look at the response of the people around her. What's your response? What's your response?
I'm tempted to look at this passage and look at the faith of this woman, Mary, and think, wow, I'm a lousy Christian because that's not my response. I'm fighting to provide for my family so I can get out of generational poverty because I don't want them to ever experience what I experienced as a kid. So that's tough for me. What's your response? And I was reminded that I'm not called to sacrifice my 401k. I'm not. Why? Because that would be religion. That's why. I'm not called to do as Mary did. I'm not. Not exactly. Why? Because in verse 8, it says she did what she could. She did what she could. And in that moment, that is what her heart led her to in her time of response. And if I was to copy her response, what would that mean for me? It means that I'm living in a world of religion, not a world of relationship. That's what it would mean. Also, I don't want to skip this. Her act of worship made everyone around her uncomfortable. How many of us are holding back because we're afraid of making someone else uncomfortable? And so we're timid. And we're like, well, maybe I'm not called to do all that. Don't let someone else's opinion of you hold you back from what God has called you to. What are you called to do? You're called to do what you can. Verse eight, she did what she could. <clears throat> How much should you do? As much as you can. How far should you go? As far as you can. How many people should you serve? As many as you can. What's your response? What's your response? Once we have become aware of our sickness and we encounter the cure, it leaves room for only one appropriate response, and that is adoration and devotion. That's it. That's it. We're not called to bring an offering. We're not called to bring a sacrifice but we're called to bring our very heart to the altar and commune with the Lord in order to minister to him. And in doing so, we're ministered to ourselves. And this is what I mean by that. Do you think Jesus is days away he knows what's coming. He knows what's about to happen. Do you think this woman's act did anything for Jesus? He was getting ready to bear our sickness and our shame and our sin. How do you think that felt? Just imagine that for a moment with me. Do you think he was lonely? Do you think he was afraid? 
He was. Do you think he wanted relief? Do you think he wanted comfort? He did. Now, do you think that act of devotion, the breaking of her jar and the anointing of his head did anything for him? It did. It ministered to his heart. It did. I think that we forget that Jesus was more human than any of us could ever imagine, which also means that he felt more intensely and deeply than a lot of us probably even realize. And Mary ministered to Jesus. And in doing so, she was ministered too. She loved on Jesus. And in doing so, she was loved on too. What's your response? What's your response? Psalm chapter 51, verse 16 states, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit. It's a contrite heart. And you, God, will not despise that. And so we don't bring anything we could do for you, Lord. We bring our hearts and we pour it out at your feet. And it's there in our ministering to you, Lord, in our love and our devotion and adoration to you, Lord, that we find ourselves being ministered to as well. We're gonna get ready to sing a song together, church, and it's called Alabaster Heart. And I'm gonna pray for us in a moment. And we're gonna worship together. And this song says, here it is, my alabaster heart. And it's this picture of us bringing our broken heart before the Lord and pouring it out, not holding anything back. And that's exactly the worship that God wants. What is your response? What is your response? Let's pray. God, we come before you right now and we thank you for who you are. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that we don't have to bring a sacrifice. We don't have to bring a burnt offering. If we do, it's purely out of the overflow of our heart. But it is not a need. It's not a necessity. It's not a demand. But what we do bring is our broken and contrite heart, Lord, before you. We bring our devotion. We bring our adoration. We bring our alabaster heart, as fragile as it is. And we hold nothing back from your presence in this place right now. And so, Lord, as we minister to you and love on you, I pray that your people would be ministered to and be loved on as well. God, I pray that you would remind us that you call us to do more than we think we can as well. To give more of ourselves than we think we can. Those parts that are hidden, those parts that we feel are too broken. We're not keeping anything back from who you are, Jesus. So we worship together as your church right now in this place. Amen.